Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in LA and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm your host, Nara Wang, and for episode 23, we're taking a look at the USC men's basketball team as they prepare to play in the Pac-12 tournament. My guest today is one of the best college hoops analysts you can find on TV in the studio with Fox Sports, and this season, he's going to be doing games during the NCAA tournament for Westwood One Radio. He's also been a successful head coach with 226 wins over 12 seasons for two schools, St. John's and that one over in Westwood. Steve Lavin, it's wonderful to welcome you to the Everything USC podcast. Great to be with you, Nara. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, or more. You can also go to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcast. For me, you can find and follow me on Twitter, at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steve, let the people know how they can catch you, whether it's social media or on the regular airwaves. Well, let's see. Social media is the same when it comes to my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle, and that is Steve Lavin 64 And upcoming this week, we're covering the Big East Tournament in studio out here in Los Angeles. We'll have our talent back east at Madison Square Garden. They'll be covering the games, but I'll be in studio with Donnie Marshall and our host, Rob Stone. So looking forward to covering the Big East. And of course, with our bridge shows, the between game shows, post game shows, we'll also be covering the other tournament action in terms of highlights and analysis. So this is a great time of the year. Just looking forward to this championship week. And of course, March Madness, nothing like it. Was able to participate as an assistant coach, as a head coach, as you mentioned at Purdue, as an assistant, UCLA as a head coach, St. John's as a head coach. And then intermittently between those coaching stops, also able to cover it as a broadcaster. And as you know, it's one of the great events sporting events in the world, right up there in my book with the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Olympics, World Cup soccer. And of course, I'm biased. So I personally think it's the best sporting event in the world. Little League World Series, we've got to give them some love as well, but nothing like March Madness. March Madness is definitely my favorite sporting event of all the sporting events, and I'm a sports junkie. So I totally agree with you there. Good. That's right off the gate. That's a good sign that we got a Trojan and a Bruin that are agreeing on something right out of the gate. So that bodes well for our time together today. Definitely. The Everything USC podcast is brought to you by Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Basketball is in full swing with the NBA going into its second half and college hoops heating up as schools make their way to the madness. The tournament is coming, and so is the $100,000 Bracket Madness Contest, as Bet Online is the spot for all your bracketology needs. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. 
Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Steve, since you are the former coach of the UCLA Bruins, I think we have to begin by going over the regular season finale between the Trojans and their crosstown rivals at Pauley Pavilion over the weekend. USC snapped UCLA's 18-game home winning streak with a 64-63 win to sweep the season series for the second straight year. Taj Eadie hit a three-pointer from the left corner with 1.4 seconds left to give SC its first and only lead of the game for the final score. Shades of what happened in the final game of the 2020 season when Jonah Matthews hit a three at Galen Center to deliver a 54-52 win last year. How big a win was that for USC? Well, there's an element that I consider to be very important when you head into the postseason, and that is momentum. Teams that have momentum building through February and into March have, you know, the wind at their back. They got the pep and the step. There's a confidence and a game like This past weekend where USC went in and knocked off the Bruins can be a catalyst to brimming with confidence and a belief that you can pull out games as they did against the Bruins in Poly Pavilion. And of course, when you add the rivalry aspect, crosstown, recruiting, going, you know, down the line some here. And Andy Enfield has had success against Mick Cronin, now 4-0 against the Bruins during the Mick Cronin era. So for a number of reasons, it's a big win for the Trojans and UCLA now uh, looking to bounce back and turn their fortunes as they step in to the conference tournament. And of course, conference tournaments give you that fresh start, a new beginning. And that's one of the things I love about championship week, no matter how good your season was, how bad your season was, whatever struggles you've had during the regular season, you can get hot for three or four days and punch your ticket and go dancing in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, you are definitely right about the momentum swings going into the conference tournament because USC got two big wins to finish off the regular season, the one against UCLA, and then during the week at home, they crushed Stanford. But that was coming off of two not-so-great games on the mountain road trip to lose at Colorado and Utah. So it's been a little bit up and down recently for USC, but they finished the regular season strong. Of course, the leading score for SC in the game is the freshman sensation Evan Mobley. He had 13 points, 11 boards, and 3 blocks. Edie had 12 points, and Chavez Goodwin off the bench, a big contributor with 12 points as well. The other SC guy in double figures was Drew Peterson. UCLA, of course, was playing without their leading scorer, Johnny Juzang, who had hurt his right ankle in practice the day before the game. Jaime Jaquez led the way for them with 12 points and 5 boards. Jules Bernard with 11 and 7. They had a great contribution off the bench in the first half. David Singleton came in, had 11 points on the game, shot 2 of 2 from 3. And then Cody Riley, who had missed the first USC-UCLA game of the season, had 10 points and 3 blocks in this one. Overall, in the game, even though SC got the win with the buzzer beater at the end, UCLA had a 13-point lead in the first half and looked to be in control for most of it. How does USC manage to keep that game close enough 
so that they're in the position to win it at the end? Well, it's a good sign when your team is able to demonstrate resiliency and in key stretches, get the stops. And of course, shutouts lead to runouts and opportunities in the open court for easy baskets. And USC has a balanced attack. That's what I like about their personnel and their approach. And even if you look you know, at the numbers, they're third in the Pac-12 in offense, but they're second in the Pac-12 in defense. And so that ability to come back, to win a game in dramatic fashion shows that they've got the resolve, the character, they were resolute and found a way to get a win. And uh, that's so important, in particular, stepping into the postseason when you're in a single elimination game format for the conference tournament, as well as the NCAA tournament. It's a great reference point moving forward for the USC Trojans. And when you look at USC, you've got to start with their front line, Isaiah and Evan Mobley, and really the entire roster. They're second when you look at the metrics of length and height. And that plays a factor, both in the resistance that they're able to provide defensively at the rim. That alters the game. It alters opponent shots. And then to have that length offensively at the rim is an advantage as well in terms of second shots and putbacks. USC, not surprisingly, first in the Pac-12 in rebounding, first in the Pac-12 in block shots. And you build championship-level play from the inside out, both offensively and defensively. And with that said, Tajidi is, you know, a prolific scorer. We saw that on display in crunch time with that three-point shot late in the game to pull it out. So it's a balanced team. Ethan Anderson as well, Drew Peterson with his size to see over the top on the perimeter. I like his judgments both in passing. He's an excellent playmaker, but also will take the opportunities to drive the ball, understands angles and uh, efficient in terms of his economy of movement, doesn't waste his dribbles, but a terrific straight line driver and the way he attacks the rim is impressive. And then also shares the ball when the opportunities present themselves. So taking a look at USC's season as a whole, they finish ranked 24th in the AP poll and 23rd in the coaches poll with a 21 and six record. They went 15 and five good for second place in the PAC 12. And of course the PAC 12, not getting a lot of love nationally in the polls, They're one of two Pac-12 teams in each poll. Colorado is a spot ahead of them at 23 in the AP poll. And Oregon, the conference regular season champ, isn't even ranked in the AP poll, but they do come in at number 25 in the coaches poll. And when you look at the net rankings, however, USC getting a little bit better run there at number 15 based on a 4-3 quad 1 record, 5-3 in quad 2, and an undefeated 12-0 against quad 3 and quad 4. And then Colorado at number 12 is the top-ranked Pac-12 team. Oregon just at number 32 in the net rankings. And looking at the schedule for SC in the season, not a lot of non-conference this year just because of how the season started with the pandemic. And so their two biggest non-conference games came at the beginning of December in Connecticut at the Roman Legends Classic at the Mohegan Sun out there, where they destroyed BYU 79-53 before losing 61-58 against UConn. In conference, you got to say the best conference wins were sweeping UCLA and Stanford and beating up on Oregon 72-58. The five conference losses they had, they were swept by Colorado. 
had the road losses to Oregon State and Utah, and then a home loss to Arizona, which of course is ineligible by their own regard this season for postseason. So when you look at the USC season as a whole, Steve Lavin, what do you make of it and how did it prepare USC now for the conference tournament and postseason play? Well, I think big picture, Andy Enfield has the program trending in the right direction. And last year, obviously, because of COVID, things were cut short regarding the conference tournament. But, you know, the recruiting by the USC staff led by Andy Enfield has been first rate. And when you've got a lottery pick as a freshman in Evan Mobley, it shows your program is healthy. He was the Pac-12 player of the year and gives USC an opportunity to make a run in this NCAA tournament. I believe they're capable of being a second weekend team. And once you get there, now you've got your sights on a potential Final Four if you can take care of business. And so Andy Enfield has been consistent in delivering results. You look at the track record, it's as impressive as any in the history of the USC basketball program in terms of this stretch of success. And of course, they've had outstanding coaching through the years, going back to Force Too Good, Sam Barry, even before that. And of course, the Bob Boyd eras with Paul Westfall and Gus Williams, George Raveling, Stan Morrison, and you know, more recently, Henry Bibby. And then here we have Andy Enfield doing a stand-up job. So I think a bright future, not only this year for USC, but moving down the line because of their ability to attract high-level talent. Andy Enfield's system and style of play is attractive to prospects throughout the country. And of course, it doesn't hurt to be in sunny Southern California and have a world-class university like USC in terms of attending and the curriculum and the value of a degree from USC. And you mentioned it, Evan Mobley, named earlier today as we record on a Tuesday as the Pac-12 Player of the Year, the Pac-12 Freshman of the Year, and the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year, sweeping the big awards there. And he becomes the first player in Pac-12 history to sweep those three awards and just the second major conference player after... Anthony Davis of Kentucky to do that by getting a player of the year, defensive player of the year, and freshman of the year. Within the Pac-12, he is the first freshman to win defensive player of the year since Gary Payton back in the 86-87 season for Oregon State. And he becomes the fourth player to win both the player of the year and the freshman of the year. DeAndre Ayton did it for Arizona, Kevin Love for UCLA, and Sharif Abdurrahim for Cal was the first to do that. So just an incredibly impressive season by the freshman. There was a lot of hype about him coming in, and I think he's definitely lived up to it. And you can see, though, that he has even more to go in his game, and I think that's why all the NBA scouts are going to love him. And would you expect him to be a top three pick? I mean, everyone knows he's going to leave, so he's going to be a top three pick, right? Yeah, I'd be... Very surprised uh, if he wasn't at the top of the draft. The physical attributes are clearly there just in terms of his length, his size, and then you get into his skill set, which is impressive, and his mindset. I like the even keel temperament. He burns his emotional fuel in a very efficient manner. Sometimes with young players, we'll see them in the peaks and valleys. When you look at Evan Mobley, there's a wisdom, kind of an old soul. 
And that calmness, I think, bodes well for his future. Again, not just here in the postseason with USC, but moving forward in his NBA career. And he appears to have a good basketball intellect, a good feel for the game. There's a grace and a fluidity, an ease that he plays the game with that is exceptional. And when you look at the best in any sport, that comes into play, whether it's Gretzky in hockey or Jerry Rice running a pass pattern in football, you know, a Barishnikov and dancing. Let's take Fred Astaire as a tap dancer. Dancers, athletes, there's a lot of commonalities when you look at the grace of movement, the ease of movement, the economy of movement. And Evan Mobley has those gifts that make you think about some of the best in basketball, you know, through the years. So, you know, Tim Floyd, when he was a head coach, brought in some tremendous prospects that went on to the NBA. But uh, Andy Enfield has continued to load up with NBA prospects. And talent is the lifeblood of any program, whether it's football, basketball, gymnastics, track and field, baseball. And so, again, a salute to Andy Enfield and his staff for continuing to recruit at a high level. And that momentum will carry over because young people throughout the country are watching basketball programs and evaluating in terms of where they want to attend school and be a student athlete. And USC has some great momentum right now. It's a good thing, not only for USC, but for the Pac-12. Andy Enfield also named the Pac-12 Coach of the Year, the first time he's won that honor in his eight seasons as the Trojans head coach. And Taj Eady gets second team all Pac-12 honors as well. So those are the guys winning awards in the conference for USC this season. And of course, the season is not done. They are still looking forward to what's coming up for them in postseason play. We're going to get to that in just a bit. And of course, my guest today is the former head coach at St. John's and UCLA. Now you can see him on TV as an analyst for Fox Sports on their college basketball coverage. And coming up, he's going to be on the radio for NCAA tournament games as well. That would be Steve Lavin, who joins me today on the Everything USC podcast. So if you enjoy listening to the show, find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more. Or you can go right to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. To reach out to me to talk Trojan sports or anything else, go to Twitter and find me at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Steve Lavin. Let the people know where they can catch up with you. Yeah, my handles on Twitter and Instagram are the same, at SteveLavin64. Marcus Grant here from the NFL Network, and you're checking out the Everything USC podcast with my old roommate, Nara Wang, on the Believe Podcast Network. I believe in Trojan sports. Hope you believe, too. Fight on. All right, Coach Steve Lavin, let's now take a look at the upcoming Pac-12 tournament. USC gets the number two seed behind the top seed Oregon Ducks, and SC will play the winner of the game on the first day of the tournament between number seven seeded Utah and the number 10 Washington Huskies. This, of course, puts USC on the same side of the bracket as number three Colorado, which has been a really tough matchup for them. This season, and really in recent years, Colorado has basically owned SC. But assuming that's the second round matchup, that should be a hotly contested one over there in Las Vegas. How much can USC hurt or help their seeding by how they do in this Pac 12 tournament? 
if they were to win the Pac-12 tournament, I think they have the opportunity to move up at least two slots in terms of seeding. And also the optics are in play. So not only accumulating wins and trying to improve your math in terms of quad one victories, your strength of schedule, all the different elements that go in to what the selection committee looks at. And so there's also the optics. So if they're playing at a high level, the committee does consider that as well. That's a little more subjective than the instruments used like the net ranking. But it's important that USC plays well because you want to carry that momentum into the NCAA tournament. So while it's important to you know have higher seeds, uh, at the end of the day, it's about matchups and how well you're playing and staying healthy and just continuing to build as a team. So often we'll see teams that improve over the course of the NCAA tournament from game to game and week to week. And that can be the difference in winning a national championship or getting to the final four. Or we see teams that kind of flatten and they don't elevate or continue to improve their play. And as a result, they're knocked out in the early rounds of the NCAA tournament. So continuing to improve with each practice and each game opportunity, even within a postseason opportunity, that's critical. And right now, most observers feel that the top four seeds in the Pac-12, Oregon, USC, Colorado, and UCLA, are pretty safely into the big dance. Is there another team that you think could maybe surprise people and win the Pac-12 tournament, a sleeper team that could maybe get the Pac-12 an extra team into the NCAA tournament? No, I really think it will be one of those top four teams. And just the way in which the conference this year has played out. And when you look at those top four teams, they're built for success. And, you know, injuries have played a part in terms of UCLA season. And everyone in the country has had to adjust and adapt to COVID-19 protocols and the pauses within a season. And so I'm impressed with these four Pac-12 teams that have positioned themselves for the NCAA tournament the way they've navigated the ups and downs and really demonstrating some maturity. And while this is less than ideal in terms of the conditions, there are life lessons and attributes that transcend sport that come from experiencing something like the student athletes have this year that have competed for the NCAA, not just in basketball, but in other sports as well. So I think the winner of the Pac-12 tournament is going to come from those top four seeded teams, Colorado, as you alluded to, a very dangerous. They're playing with momentum. They've won four straight going into the conference tournament. They have an outstanding guard, McKinley Wright, you know, over 1,600 points, 600 rebounds, 600 assists. First player in Pac-12 history to achieve that. And they play good defense. They don't beat themselves. You know, they've got an opportunity. And you look at Oregon. They've won 10 of 11. They also are sprinting to the finish line. And USC with that big win over UCLA, could be a catalyst for them having more momentum in the postseason. And UCLA is going to have to bounce back, show some resiliency after losing to their crosstown rival in a heartbreaking fashion. For me, I'm still thinking that Dana Altman's going to get his squad the Pac-12 championship. Do you have a prediction for me on who you think is going to win the Pac-12 conference tournament? Well, right now, you know, Oregon or USC, I think, play with a greater margin for error. And if you look at the track record of uh, Dana Altman in the postseason, he's demonstrated the ability to push the right buttons, make adjustments, not only over the course of the regular season, 
But coming down the stretch, more often than not, Dana Altman's teams tend to peak in March. Uh, matter of fact, he's the only coach in the Pac-12 that's led a program to a Final Four when he took the Oregon Ducks. So I think that does matter. Postseason experience, comfort level with coaching in the NCAA tournament, the conditions of the NCAA tournament, while this would be a different, unprecedented NCAA tournament with all the games being played in Indianapolis, I do think coaches who have been to the NCAA tournament, taken teams on deep runs on a regular basis, have a slight edge. But Andy Enfield, no stranger to the postseason and had success at Florida Gulf with that outstanding run to the Sweet 16. And then, of course, has come over to USC and has built a really solid program. And I like Andy's temperament. You know, he also, similar to what we were talking about, Evan Mobley, as a coach, he's not in the peaks or valleys. He's very even keel. And I think that steady stewardship is a positive because when a coach doesn't panic, then his teams don't tend to panic. And the game against UCLA was an example of that. They trailed for the entire game until Taj Edie's shot from the corner to close that game out in dramatic fashion. So a salute to Indy Enfield and his coaching staff for positioning USC to have hopes to make a run to the Final Four. And they should feel that way. It's happened before with freshmen. Mike Bibby in 97 helped lead Arizona to a national championship. Never nervous. Purvis Ellison of Louisville took Denny Crum's team on a run for a national championship. And USC will be in a position where they're not going to have the pressure of you know being a one seed or even a two seed, but I think they're as dangerous as any team in the NCAA tournament field when you look at their personnel. And again, going back to size, their rebounding advantage over opponents, the block shot factor as well. And because of that length at the rim, being able to get second shots, play volleyball on the backboards, and just having an anchor to be able to throw it to Evan Mobley. And he makes tremendous judgments against double teams. He finds his teammates, whether it's a cutter or spraying the ball back out to the perimeter to a jump shooter. And the brothers play well as a tandem. Isaiah Mobley, you know, in the shadow some of his brother, but Isaiah, solid, reliable, a high percentage finisher, does work on the boards. So that's a nice tandem to have on the front line. And so we know USC is headed for the NCAA tournament. We just don't know exactly what seed they may get, which may be determined by how they do in the Pac-12 tournament. A few weeks ago, when SC was at its peak during the regular season, a lot of people had them pegged as a four seed. They've dropped now down where some people have them as a seven seed. I think it's probably going to be a five, six, or seven seed for USC. Is that what you're looking at too for them? Yeah, there's some elbow room there, again, based on how well they play. If they win the Pac-12 tournament, they can climb up the ladder in terms of the seedings. If they also, from an optics standpoint, make a statement. In other words, if they were to go in and blow teams out and win in dominating fashion, bringing the hardware back to Los Angeles in terms of the conference tournament championship, then people are going to take notice. I mean, that's what the selection committee does is they're taking notes not only down the stretch in February and early March, but into championship week. And so there is room to help your cause in terms of climbing the ladder with a higher seed, but you can also drop some. And again, what we emphasized is controlling your own destiny, not to worry about the pundits, not to worry about what people are saying in terms of uh, the selection committee's thoughts and all the crystal ball kind of speculation that happens at this time of the year. Instead, let's focus on the task at hand, our upcoming opponent, matchups, where we can take advantage of personnel in those matchups, and how to best position 
our team for success. And if we play well and go on runs, then the rest takes care of itself. I was fortunate at UCLA to have a team that won 12 straight games late in the season in 1997. And in 2001, we had a team that won eight straight coming down the stretch into the Sweet 16. St. John's had a team that won 10 of 11 in the old Big East coming down the stretch. And even later in 2014 and 15, we had teams that went on runs. So it's about momentum. That's what I mentioned at the outset. We began this conversation. You want to you know, peak your teams at a competitive level this time of the year. And you learn from setbacks. I don't think those losses to Colorado and Utah are necessarily a bad thing. You'd rather win than lose. Obviously, you'd rather be undefeated every season if we could be. But I like teams that are bloodied but unbowed. In other words, they've taken some hits. They've come out of a power conference. Even some teams that may have double-digit losses. Those are oftentimes the most dangerous teams in the NCAA tournament if they've learned from their setbacks and it's informed a better way moving forward. And just like life itself, that's what I love about sports in its purest form. It's a metaphor for life. And you learn these attributes and traits and qualities and characteristics and virtues and values that we carry forth after our athletic careers. And so those losses to Colorado and Utah allows USC to come back as a staff, you know, first and examine where they need to improve upon, what adjustments they need to make. And then you get on the practice floor after watching game film with your team and you make adjustments and then you go out and you play again. And that, again, if it elevates your team's play so that you're better in the postseason, some of those losses, not that you want losses, but some of them turn out to be blessings because you learn a better approach moving forward. That's definitely true. And Steve, as someone who took UCLA to the tournament six times, St. John's twice, you know that March is all about matchups. So let's dive into this a little bit. What teams out there do you think would be a good matchup for USC to get in the tournament? And what teams could be a bad matchup for USC? You know, I think USC has the ability because of their size and the balance of quickness, length of an offensive approach that allows them to play through the bigs on the baseline, but can also knock down shots on the perimeter. USC is a team that plays well with a pedal to the metal approach, fast breaking, playing at high speed, but they also have enough balance to execute on the half court. So with that said, USC would prefer to play at higher tempos. And teams that have given them problems, like Colorado, play at a more deliberate pace and try and shorten the game, less possessions. Uh, a team like Villanova, who also has that very patient approach, and they play some of their defense through their offense. In other words, they don't turn the ball over. They get deep into the shot clock possession. And while they have the ball and they're working for good shots, that's seconds and time and less possessions that their opponent will have the ball. And so that's why we talk about there are certain teams over the years, Wisconsin played that way. Way back, Pete Carrill at Princeton played that way. They would play a degree of defense through their offense. In simplest terms, it's almost like keep away. If we have the ball, you don't. You can't score, and we could choose, and we want to try and score. So I think for USC, their best matchups are against teams that want to try and run with them. They want to get up and down the floor with them. And with that said, I also like the fact that with the Mobley brothers, USC is comfortable in the half court and playing inside out because of 
the very skilled players, when you look at, you know, Anderson and Peterson, and of course, Edie, the transfer from Santa Clara, it's brought a great element to this USC team. But I don't think USC is built as ideally to go against the teams like Wisconsin, Villanova, Colorado, that like that grinding, methodical, almost like a tortoise pace. So if you look at it like that, the old fable, I see USC wanting to get up and down the floor like the hare and not wanting to grind it out and play at a methodical pace like the tortoise. And of course, it's tough to say right now because we don't know what the field is going to look like, but how far do you think USC could go in the big dance? You know, I think the second weekend is an expectation. And once you get to that second weekend, because I do think they're a Sweet 16 level team in terms of their personnel, there is that element of, you know, Evan Mobley being a freshman. And so, you know, we're going to find out some freshmen step into the tournament and they elevate their play. Like we mentioned, you know, Jason Kidd at Cal Berkeley was a player that, you know, stepped in and ended up knocking off the defending national champion, Duke Blue Devils in 1993. And that's when Cal had a run to the second weekend. Maybe there's one other time under Ben Braun where I think they made a Sweet 16 run as well. But it'll be interesting to see how Evan Mobley responds. I expect him to play at a very high level because he has that unique poise and a special temperament, a maturity beyond his years. And we've seen that on display this year. And that's just one other element that makes him special and you know such a high-level prospect. With that said, the first time, whether you're a coach or a player, I remember my first experience as a head coach in the NCAA tournament, and the vital signs go north. You're seeing things in a very rapid manner. Similar to someone in their first, you know, mission into space, guarantee the adrenaline, the vital signs go north or the first time a race car driver is in the Indy 500. And it's the same for athletes. The first time in the postseason, the first time in the second weekend of play, the first time in the final four, the first time in the national championship game, your first Super Bowl. But with each passing experience in the postseason, you improve upon, you know, just your overall comfort level and the vital signs don't go as north. And you're seeing things at a pace that allows you to make better judgments, better decisions. And for a coach, whether it's a timeout or not calling a timeout, substitutions, when to go to his zone, when not to go to his zone, just seeing what's happening at a pace because of experience. And that's why I go back to what I call the jockeys, the head coaches. There's a reason why certain programs and certain coaches advance and get to the final four, the winner's circle more frequently than others. It's a gift. It's a talent intuition, it's feel, but also it's the experience of having done it. And the reps are really important. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how Evan Mobley and this USC team performs in that first round game, because that's the toughest. I think once you get past that kind of pop in the court, so to speak, it tends to play itself out, but you got to get by that first round game. I think you're right. The expectation should be for SC to be a second weekend team, make the sweet 16. And They're a team that really can play with anybody, and it will just be determined by what the matchups in the bracket end up being. So we'll see what happens there. But in terms of the big picture, Final Four, possible national champion, I think most people are basically gifting Gonzaga and Baylor into the Final Four. Do you agree with that? And who else would you see joining them there and who could possibly win the whole thing? Keep in mind, back to... You know, NCAA tournament, 18 to 22-year-olds, postseason conditions, and the beauty of a one-and-done scenario that is the postseason, both in conference tournaments, 
and the NCAA tournament. So there's no doubt that Baylor and Gonzaga play with a greater margin for error. And what does that mean? A greater margin for error means that you can have an off night in you know an aspect of play. Maybe it's free throw shooting, which is one of the things that does concern me about USC is their free throw shooting. Because so often in close games, the outcome is determined by who can make free throws. Kind of like the kicking game in football with extra points and field goals. And so I do think that Gonzaga, Baylor, just their athleticism, their firepower allows them to play with a much greater margin for error than the rest of the NCAA tournament field. But the Big 12, in my view, has the most teams capable of making a deep run in the tournament, whether that's to the Elite Eight, punching through to a Final Four, a potential national champion. And that's aside from Baylor. They are a league, you know, six deep quality teams and speed, skill, quickness, really very similar to what the Southeastern Conference is in football. But the Big 12 has that in basketball. Outstanding guard play. Also, six coaches out of the 10 teams in the Big 12 have been to a Final Four, and that's big. And some have been to multiple Final Fours. You think of Bob Huggins. You look at Lon Kruger. There's just a number, and I think Scott Drew next year, if his Baylor team punches through, is likely to be the seventh coach in a 10-team conference that's led their team to a Final Four. And when you look at the back 12, as you mentioned, Dane Altman's the only coach who's done that. When you look at the Big Ten, surprisingly, only Tom Izzo has led his team to a Final Four. And uh, naturally, that's because a number of the coaches who previously had gone to Final Fours, like Thad Mata and Judd Heathcote and Bob Knight and Clem Haskins and other coaches, uh, Steve Fisher, they've moved on or retired. And so still, it's worth watching when people are handicapping. You know, I look at the coaches and who has been there before. So the Big 12, I think a sleeper out of the Big 10 is Purdue. Seven foot four, Zach Eady comes off the bench for them, gives them a skyscraper, a very unique player that can alter the game. And when E's not in the game. Travion Williams is a totally different type of frontline player, outstanding passer, comfortable on the perimeter, can play inside as well. They have a nine-man rotation. Jaden Ivey is a budding superstar, long, athletic, rangy. Stefanovic knocks down shots, small angles. Purdue has won 11 of 14 games in the rugged Big Ten Conference. So for them to be coming in with a head of steam to the Big Ten Tournament, with that many consecutive wins, and if I'm not mistaken, five straight to finish out the season, they just have an element about them. They're going to be playing with house money. They won't have the pressure of being a one or a two seed. I do think they could creep to a three seed if they were to win the Big Ten Conference Tournament, and they're going to be the home team. I mean, they are likely to be the only team from the state of Indiana playing all of their games you know, within range of their home campus, Indianapolis, even if it's Butler, Lucas Oil. Assembly Hall. So I do think there's also an advantage and maybe a storybook element, almost destiny or fate. You know, John Wooden was a three-time All-American at Purdue, and uh, wouldn't it be amazing? It would be their first national championship since the John Wooden era when he was a Boilermaker. So I like Purdue as a sleeper or dark horse pick to get to the Final Four and possibly even win it all. And uh, if not, they bring, you know, I think five underclassmen back next year, and uh, the majority of their roster is returning. So it'll be outstanding and probably a preseason top five looking ahead to next season. And you bring up a point that I was going to bring up next, which is the fact that the entire NCAA tournament will take place in 
the state of Indiana, mostly in the city of Indianapolis due to the COVID protocols to try and keep people as safe as possible and reduce the risks with all the traveling and everything. So they're going to bring everyone into the state of Indiana to run this tournament. So how does that change affect how you prepare for a tournament when in previous years, obviously, it's broken up by a couple of weekends, you're preparing to play at a certain site, and then the next weekend's the regional site, and then if you're fortunate enough, you go to a Final Four site. Now, everything is going to be contained in Indiana. Like you said, Purdue might have a home advantage just by being the one team from Indiana that's going to be in the tournament, possibly. And how do you see that affecting how these schools are going to prepare by going to just one site? Number one, this entire year has been you know, unique, unusual, unprecedented. So the good news is, you know, the teams in the NCAA tournament coming out of their conference tournaments are accustomed to having to adjust, be flexible in their approach, be ready to pivot and change. And that, again, is so important as a trait or quality in life, even when we sometimes don't want to change or have to modify or adjust. We know that's one of the important elements to achieving and being successful in life. So at least the good news for all the teams participating is they've already had a run-up to the tournament where it's included in flexible. And I think it'll be refreshing that they don't have to get on airplanes. And if you advance, you know, you're staying in the same hotel and you have more routine than you had all season long. And I think that's what the NCAA had in mind in terms of keeping it containing different than what you know, the NBA successfully did in Orlando, but there are going to be some similarities and lessons learned from what the NBA shared with the organizers, the NCAA, in terms of things to look for, things to anticipate. And there's always that trial and error, kind of the trial balloon that was the NBA bubble in Orlando, which turned out to be remarkably successful. So I think the goal is to duplicate, replicate that, but now in Indianapolis with four teams and a different style of tournament with a single elimination element that's in play, but a state that appreciates basketball, the history of basketball in the heartland is as good as it gets. And so I'm really eager and looking forward. And I think all the teams are going to have a good experience. It's going to take obviously vigilance and really, you know, staying with the fundamentals of all the things from washing hands, do your mask mechanics and the testing is going to be state of the art at a high level but also some discipline and intelligence on young people that are participating in this tournament is going to be important as well. So looking forward to the madness. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our favorite time of year, March Madness, favorite sporting event. So it'll be coming up in just a couple of weekends. This weekend, of course, is a lot of the championship tournaments that will determine who is going to make the field of 68 for the big dance. And I am being joined today on episode 23 of the Everything USC podcast by Steve Lavin, the former head coach at UCLA and St. John's. You can see him on TV now with Fox Sports as a college basketball analyst in the studio. And he's going to be on Westwood One Radio, along with Dave Pash calling games for the NCAA tournament this season. You can always find this show on all of your favorite podcast directories. Whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, or more, please subscribe and rate us. You can also go to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. 
For me, I am on Twitter at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Coach Steve Lavin, let people know how they can catch up with you. Yes, my social media is Steve Lavin 64 at Steve Lavin 64. And that's both Twitter and Instagram. And of course, we'll be on Fox Sports and Fox Sports 1, FS1 this weekend covering the Big East tournament and also doing highlights and analysis on all the tournaments throughout the country. Every other year, we cover the Pac-12 tournament. We alternate that with ESPN. So I look forward to covering the Pac-12 tournament next year in Las Vegas. Hey, everyone. This is Chuck Arfine of NBC Sports Chicago and proud USC alum. And you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Finally, Steve Lavin, I can't let you go without going a little bit into your coaching career. You won 63% of the games you coached at UCLA and St. John's, going to the NCAA tournament eight times. With the Bruins, five of your six trips to the big dance resulted in the Sweet 16, and in your first season, you went to the Elite Eight. You took the Red Storm to the tourney in your final season as coach in 2015. And now listen, you're great on TV analyzing college basketball, so I'm not trying to push you out of it by any means, but are you interested in getting back into coaching if an opportunity presents itself? Well, I appreciate the kind remarks, Nara. And if the right fit presented, I would definitely consider a return to coaching. I enjoy my work as a broadcaster. There's something to be said for being undefeated when you work as a broadcaster, but I do miss the competition at the highest levels, the camaraderie with the players and my staff and working with a group of people towards common goals of trying to win a championship. And I enjoy being on a college campus. My father was an educator. He was an English literature, philosophy, poetry teacher. He authored 17 books and was a lifelong teacher. And so it's in our blood. And I grew up around college campuses at Cal Berkeley and San Francisco State, College of Marin, Dominican College. And my father also taught on the high school level, even taught one night a week for a period of time at San Quentin with some of the prisoners that were close to being released. So it's in the DNA. And if the right fit presented, and I thought we had an opportunity to win, it was a mutual embrace. And that's what happened at St. John's. I've been in television at ABC ESPN for seven years, was enjoying my work alongside my partner, Brent Musburger, who taught me a great deal about the sports television business and really took me under his wing, was an outstanding mentor. And then St. John's presented. There were some schools along the way, like North Carolina State, that I had the opportunity to step back in to the coaching racket, but chose to stay in television. But with St. John's, the Big East, the tradition, the heritage, Madison Square Garden, I knew we could be successful. And we were with the two NITs, two NCAAs. There was a year I missed recovering from cancer, but I've had a clean bill of health since 2011. So 10 years now, knock on wood and grateful for that opportunity. So I would return if there was the right fit, but I also really enjoy my work in broadcasting. So it's really about the gift that reveals. And if it does, I would definitely consider a return to the sidelines. And if it doesn't, I also enjoy my work. And if this is what takes me to the finish line, I'm grateful for that as well. Have there been opportunities since you were let go by St. John's where people reached out to you and you just weren't interested or weren't ready or it wasn't the right fit? And on the flip side, have you also been maybe throwing your name out there for certain jobs that came up that you thought you were a good fit for? 
Yeah, both of those have transpired in the last six years, and so much of it's timing. You know, when I was let go from UCLA after 12 years, there five as an assistant, seven as a head coach, the gift revealed to go to ABC and ESPN. And during that time, I was able to connect with my parents in a way that I wasn't able to when on the fast track and coaching, which is a 24-7, 365-day proposition, as you know. And I'm so grateful that during those years in broadcasting, I was able to spend time with my father as he was coming down the home stretch of his life and to be there as a caretaker before he passed away. And then when I was shown the door at St. John's, I was able these last six years to spend time with my family and specifically with my mom in the home stretch of her life. She passed January 25th of 2018. And that was really a gift. And sometimes you don't know it when you're shown the door and you don't fully understand or grasp why. And then something presents in terms of the pace, the tempo of your life, or in my case, being able to caretake for both my mother and father before they passed away. And they brought me into this universe, into this world, as they did my five siblings. They raised six children on educator salary. So timing is such an interesting aspect or element when we look back at the career or the arc of our lives. And San Francisco was a position that I always had interest in because my father had played at USF in the late 40s, early 50s, the Dandy Dons. And I was offered the job there a couple of years back. But the timing, again, just didn't feel right. And, you know, unless it's that kind of mutual enthusiasm, that mutual embrace, because you need the equivalent of a good marriage if you're going to elevate, lift a program and have sustained success. It's challenging even when there's the mutual embrace and a good marriage and the people you're working with are aligned with a common kind of vision when it comes to the mission and the aims of, you know, the athletic program and the university and all those things line up, even then it's difficult. But if you don't have those elements, then it's near impossible to have success. So again, if the right things lined up, the opportunity presented, I would definitely consider a return, but I truly enjoy the people I work with and uh, pinch myself sometimes in these experiences I've had as a broadcaster. And it's also been a Am I dreaming with my coaching stops at Purdue, UCLA, and St. John's as well? So I came from a town with a population of 2,500 people, and I graduated from a school at the time that had an enrollment of 2,500 people, Chapman University. So I never dreamt in my wildest dreams that I would have had the 33-year run. And it all goes back to Coach Katie, who opened the door for me 33 years ago at Purdue, gave me the opportunity and everything from that forward is a result of Coach Katie giving me that big break. Yeah, you've had a lot of great mentors in your life. You mentioned Gene Cady, but also, of course, your dad, Cap, was a true San Francisco basketball legend. As someone who grew up in Northern California, of course, I had even heard of him. And I grew up in the Santa Cruz area, so a little bit south of San Francisco. But obviously, you've had a lot of great mentorship in your life. So I want to ask you this, just like a hypothetical, because would you only take a job to come back as a head coach? Or, again, this is a hypothetical, would you consider being an assistant, if say a former player of yours at UCLA or St. John's, like let's say Rico Hines, who played for you at UCLA, was an assistant for you at St. John's. Let's say he gets a head coaching job and he reaches out and says, hey coach, I'd love for you to come on and be like my top assistant, help guide me in my first head coaching job. Would you consider something like that or is it just head coaching? No, again, it goes back to timing. Yes. You know, you stay open 
gifts reveal, right, in unexpected ways. And life experiences teach you these things. And so I stay open to possibilities. And while to this point, it's, you know, been coaching to broadcasting, back to coaching, then returning to broadcasting, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't consider other ways to be involved in the game. We brought Coach Katie back to St. John's because he was at a place in his life where that interested him. And again, a chance to bring it full circle, like we talked earlier with, you know, my parents who brought me into the world and being able in the home stretch towards the finish line of their lives, be with them, support them and caretake for them and paying it back to Coach Katie, given he was the one that gave me the opportunity first in this business and to have him on our bench as our basketball Buddha or Mr. Miyagi and kind of our grandfatherly or Indian chief of our team. And uh, players loved him. And for me, it was just a special time, those five years with him in New York City, in the Big East, working our way back to respectability as a program and making some tournaments. That is something I'll treasure forever. So there's no doubt, you know, I keep an open mind. I got an open heart and I'm a flexible thinker and proud of all my former players. And that lined up at some point, that would be a wonderful journey to consider. And of course, like you mentioned, when you're a broadcaster, you can analyze games and you go home, you didn't take an L, no matter what. No one's going to remember whether you won or lost (laughs) on that particular day or night. So if you just end up playing it out as a broadcaster, you don't get another chance because things just don't fit or whatever as a coach, are you going to be okay with that? Are you happy with the career you've had? No doubt. You know, I was fortunate to, you know, finish at St. John's, we had back-to-back 20-win seasons. Our final year, we had 20 wins and went out with a group of tremendous seniors, D'Angelo Harrison, Phil Green, Sir Dominic Pointer, Jamal Branch. And, you know, they all graduated. Some of the players that went on to the NBA, like Jakar Sampson as an underclassman and Maurice Harkless after his freshman year. Maurice is now with the Miami Heat. Jakar with the Pacers, Sir Dom Pointer with the Cleveland Cavaliers G League team right now. Amir Garrett, who's now a major league baseball player, a pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds. They didn't finish their degrees, but they all went on to professional careers, three in the NBA and one in baseball. Matter of fact, Dom actually finished his degree and was drafted in the NBA. So, and to me, again, that's what's most important is really, you know, setting the right trajectory, a positive trajectory for young people, for life beyond sport. So really fortunate that if that was my final season as a head coach, And to go out with that group of seniors was pretty special and something, again, that I'm very grateful for. And I enjoy teaching. I taught a class last year at Chapman University on Monday nights, you know, three hours a week. It was a film, television, sports broadcasting class. And so when I was a film, television, you know, communications major as well at Chapman. So teaching and mentoring and coaching, similar to parenting, you know, is about helping young people. and helping them, you know, get closer to the full expression of their potential. That's what we're really after. And sometimes it's more challenging than others, but there's no greater reward than watching young people develop before your eyes and then pursue their dreams and goals and aspirations and to play a small part in that experience is the thing I treasure most about coaching. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today for episode 23 of the everything usc podcast it's been a thrill to talk college hoops and usc hoops specifically with you likewise and i look forward to doing it again let's keep in touch for sure so 
For my guest, Steve Lavin, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 23 of the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network. The only place with the show for every team in L.A. and so much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And as I end every show, please remember to fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.